0: eavesdrop on experts stories of inspiration and insights it's where expert types obsess confess and profess i'm chris Hatzis. let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world one lecture one experiment one interview at a time could we imagine and prototype human life in the post-pandemic world Will geeks rule in the emerging social conditions of the new normal, or will they simply become extinct in the digital mainstreaming of daily life? Associate Professor Christina Dunbar-Hester is a faculty member of the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Southern California and holds a PhD in Science and Technology Studies from Cornell University. Christina is the author of Hacking Diversity, The Politics of Inclusion in Open Technology Cultures, and Low Power to the People, Pirates, Protest and Politics in FM Radio Activism. Her writing and research centres on the politics of technology and culture, especially media and tech activisms, infrastructures and envirotechnical sites. Christina recently participated in a University of Melbourne Faculty of Arts webinar titled Geeking and Prototyping in the New Normal. Christina Dunbar Hester sat down for a Zoom chat with Dr. Andy Horvath.
1: I love a philosopher of science and technology. that's why I wanted to chat with you. Christina, are you kind of like an anthropologist of the cultures and the communities that are involved in the digital era and technologies?
2: Yeah, that's a really good way of thinking about it. I have I, I tend to focus on communities of people and how they uh, mobilize around and interpret technologies and so I had one project that was about uh, activism to promote and build community radio stations and then uh, another project that was about contestations over diversity and inclusion in hacking and open source communities and yes I go in there as a participant observer who's not a member of the communities and you know hang out and talk to people and do interviews and try to do interpretive analysis of you know what's at stake for these people in these activities that they're undertaking and you know often why engagement with technology is so important to them.
1: So you've immersed yourself in these communities and no doubt you've come to understand sort of the social dynamics and the politics. Let's talk about the hacking one. Firstly, how did you go in there? Did you go in there with just an open mind or were you searching for certain elements of political and social discourse amongst that
2: community? Yeah, that's a great question. There's actually a kind of thread between my first project, which was the radio project, and the second one with the hacking communities. The radio project was about people who in really around the turn of the millennium were advocating for building radio stations. And so that at the time they knew seemed kind of like an anachronistic undertaking, perhaps but they were somewhat skeptical of the emancipatory digital utopianism, You know, just go on the internet, it's a brave new glorious world there. So they were actually, I argued, they weren't just sort of nostalgic people longing for an age of radio, they were very sophisticated and had concluded that radio better served some of their values around electronic communication than uh, some of the internet communication. But the thread is so that brought them into contact and sometimes some degree of conflict with hacking communities and people who were more advocating for internet communication and so that was community wireless and um, you know some streaming radio those kinds of technologies. Uh, but the other sort of thread between the projects is the radio activists had a really finely developed set of practices for sort of building a utopian relationship to technology and that meant actually building technology itself and so they wanted to democratize communication and one of the ways that they wanted to do that was by teaching people how to build and work with electronic artifacts so you know tune an fm radio antenna or build your own transmitter board as a sort of demystification and um, you know leveling of expertise and one of the things that I argue in that project that was something of a unanticipated sore spot for them was they had this very radical egalitarian uh, set of ideas. But when they tried to promote electronics practice and electronics tinkering, that could wind up sort of running afoul of the democratic and feminist ideals that they had, because the people who were most likely to be knowledgeable about or enthusiastic about electronics were likely to be men, uh, and often from more elite backgrounds. And so they were kind of in this double bind promoting this, you know, egalitarian liberatory activity on the one hand, but sort of running into historical patterns of exclusion on the other. So as I said, they were sort of working through some of that. And it was actually through some of those activists that I found out about activity in free and open source software communities and, and hacking communities. Where they were really attempting to address some of these problems that also plagued computing hobbyist communities really head on. Um, And so this was at this point about 15 years ago where activists were confronting their hacking and and computing enthusiast communities and sort of saying if on the one hand there's this free culture element and um, these are supposed to be meritocratic and spaces for fun and problem solving and community building, uh, why is it that the rates of participation by women, for example, are so low? And so in the radio project, that was a sort of one little slice. It wound up being about a chapter in that book. But the hacking project, when I approached the sites as an anthropologist, I already knew I was looking at these questions of uh, inclusion and you know, what was at stake and, and why people felt passionate about these issues and also what they were trying to do practically uh, so it wasn't looking at the entire milieu of, of hacking or of open source, but it was looking at these communities specifically trying to address these problems or, or questions, issues of concern in their communities. So you
1: approach that FM community, which in the US is basically community public radio, the FM community wanted to ensure their place in the world, so started to sort of gather the troops, so to speak, but at the same time excluded certain communities in the attempt to try and make their community strong. This is really fascinating. The hacking community, though, while still a male-dominated area, did it have
2: any capacity to create sort of feminist hackers? Yeah, so that's one of the things that I think is so interesting. You know, first it would depend on where you're drawing a boundary around what what hacking even is. But if we take a fairly conventional view that it has to do with computers, programming, hardware, The sort of longer trajectory in North America and and Europe was actually that women were some of the earliest professional programmers during the war effort in World War II. And when programming was a new occupation, it wasn't gendered and computers weren't gendered. But over time, women wound up being sort of gatekept out of particularly the more prestigious parts of the Uh, occupation and even the situation in academic computer science for instance there were more women in academic computer science in like the 1980s than there were by the turn of the millennium and then open source itself was like much much more male-dominated and the research that I again draw on and that my people that I was studying and working with were drawing on there was an EU study that was published in about 2006, I think, that showed that the rate of participation by women in open source was something like 1.5%. It was like really shockingly low. And so uh, in my research, I argue that that statistic coming out actually galvanized people to have internal conversations about, you know, why, why is this the case? There's also a a genealogy of what could be called cyber feminism and and was at the time. And some of that, you know, more sort of utopian thinking about playing with or leaving behind certain aspects of social identity and looking at computers and particularly networked computing as a space to which women and gender non-conforming or non-binary people were sort of going online and sort of playing with Uh, identity in those spaces. So it wasn't that there were no women or uh, non-masculine identified people. It was that open source was particularly masculine and also that some of these kind of tracks of communities didn't necessarily intersect all that well. Um, I'll also add that I wasn't looking at women particularly. I was looking at the sort of mobilization of uh, different categories of identity and what was happening throughout my research was people kind of started with women as the first category that they were looking at, but then that sort of brought them to raise other other things like, as I said, non-binary and trans and you know gender non-conforming identities, but also to start thinking about You know race and ethnicity and nation and sort of global positioning because a lot of this my research takes place in north america and europe but there are sort of traces out into uh, other places on earth and sort of working through a lot of that which again started with women but didn't end there
1: so how does power and politics play out in these communities is it the same in these small
2: communities as it is in, say, large corporations? So that's a wonderful question, because one of the things that I was you know, sort of sorting through in all of this was what companies and workplaces had to do with what I was looking at, because what I was looking at was really voluntaristic formations. And so communities where people were coming together electively, not on the clock as part of their jobs. But at the same time, of course, there is a very strong interest in promoting the inclusion of folks from different underrepresented or gate-kept out groups in computing, in industry, and in education and higher ed. And so one of the things that I, I found, I guess, sort of perplexing and had to kind of sort through is to what extent was some of the activity that I was seeing in volunteeristic organizations directly mirroring workplace ideas about, you know, why it was important to have people from underrepresented backgrounds come into their communities uh, and to what extent was that distinct or separate. And one of the things that I argue in the book was that, you know, diversity is this pretty slippery word where people were using it to mean a lot of different things and, you know, usually to mean something that was positively valenced. We want to move towards this or have, have more of it. But it didn't really mean the same thing. And you know, sometimes it was about having a wider range of people configured for workplaces for all the reasons that companies are interested in this, uh, usually having to do with you know representation and, and market shares. But sometimes it really wasn't. And it was about a more elemental belief that working with these technologies has something liberatory to offer and you know, that to do it is to find a certain kind of liberation and joy and a sort of higher sense of self that is not about the workplace at all. And so one of the things that I was sort of having to tease out was these different threads and how they, you know, were and weren't related to each other. It's not a coincidence that a lot of the discourse in the voluntaristic spaces mirrored uh, discourse that you would find in industry and, and higher ed. And I think that sometimes that was really kind of doing a disservice for the people who were trying to promote more elemental, emancipatory, and more radical values and goals, because fundamentally, some of what the more radical strands of this activity are devoted to is actually not really compatible with some of the goals of, of capitalism, And to have all of that kind of discursively mixed up, or, you know, why are you doing this on the weekends? An easy answer is to say, you know, because I love it, but why should other people get brought into it? If you're just doing it as a sort of affective, passionate pursuit, it gets sort of tricky. An answer people would sometimes give is to sort of help people get configured to get good jobs. But to me, it's a lot more complicated than that. What are some of the
1: surprises that emerged and? and misconceptions that you sort of reversed from your research?
2: So one of the really interesting things uh, that came up in a few different ways in that research was if you're teaching people to program and, you know, hack because it's fun, where does that lead? And I had, you know, spoken to people who were saying, well, You can wind up working for, you know, Silicon Valley and a lot of their, you know, contracting work. As we know, not all of it, but a lot of it might have uh, surveillance or military implications. And you know, where does the line get drawn between, oh, you're, you know, really enjoying solving this technical problem and your responsibility for an application for it? And this was also, I would add, during the sort of aftermath of the financial crisis in the U.S. and globally. And so there was interest and support coming into hackerspaces and educational spaces for activities that as municipal budgets were being decimated, like DARPA, which is uh, part of the Department of Defense, was offering to fund hackerspaces. And it was the sort of blue skies thing. It wasn't, oh, you have to then you know, build a, a missile or a surveillance regime. But the question was really how much does that as a funding source or, you know, sort of openness to the fact that there might be weapons or surveillance implications for this kind of work, you know, how much of that is something you can bracket out. And so I was finding all kinds of really interesting, you know, data about this. And it was also during the period of um, Edward Snowden's revelations and the fact that the NSA was, you know, spying illegally on American telecommunications So I was having people sort of come out on all sides of this issue, but basically I think one of the most important things was just to like have the conversation about, we need to bring this out into the open and debate it as a community. And so I was hearing from some people and, you know, some hackerspaces, oh yeah, it would be really fun if you want to come to our hackerspace and, you know, 3D print or prototype a gun. Uh, Whereas other people were saying, you know, no, we really have to make sure that we have a strong political consciousness. And you know, not be okay with building facial recognition or working on making drones operate better just because it's like a cool technical problem. Um, So that was something I thought was really interesting and important to sort of bring out was the kind of tacit association between a lot of tech work and militarism and, and empire. So
1: Christine, you're really putting out a call to say we need to become more sophisticated consumers in these sort of technological spaces
2: yeah i don't know if i would put it as consumers but i think i would go exactly what you said i think there's a sophisticated and, and nuanced knowledge of the you know history and and present of participation in these fields of work and also fields of you know leisure or sort of hobbyist spaces that, you know, over time, really could not be separated from the maintenance and reproduction of elite social power. And so, again, if you're talking about sort of like, well, what about diversity? It's not, and this is not me making this point originally, but I would certainly endorse it. It's not a question of just sort of adding new kinds of people to the same culture and expecting it to either turn out differently or be kind of unproblematically reproducing the values that it had. There's really a longer trajectory here, which is that tech fields have been used to essentially gatekeep sort of access to not only technology, but also the sort of Social status that we assign to technologists. And so the sophistication and sort of nuance there isn't to say, oh, this is all terrible, but it's also not to say, oh, we can just sort of add women and stir or add new people and stir and we'll unseat the sort of power dynamics here that have been reproducing themselves for a long time. And so I think the challenge is to think about this both within and, you know, outside these fields to sort of think about the power status that they have and why that's been assigned to them. And, you know, what it would mean if there is a commitment to more democratic practice around, you know, these kinds of technical pursuits you know, what that would really look like and and where the levers of power are. You know, also, I think another important thing to note is we tend to grant technology and, and technologists so much power and sort of assign them such a special status in our society that we think like, oh, if we want to change society, we need to change who the technologists are or we need to open that seat up to new kinds of people and that may well be true and I have nothing against it but the other thing that I would again ask us to maybe step back and think about is how did that segment of society come to be so powerful in the first place and is that really what we want and I know that this is on the agenda in Australia as it is here you know what are the implications of that those fields having so much power for you know how we assign resources in education for example you know what does that mean for history and social science if we're deciding that the, you know, economy of producers is all going to be coders or academicians of of engineering or computer science. You know, there are some really sort of deep and elemental questions, I think, lurking behind my hobbyists pressing for inclusive practices in hackerspaces. Uh, And one of the things that I argue is that, ironically, it can't actually be solved in the hackerspace.
1: So how do you inspire your students to rethink those spaces? What sort of activities do you get them doing?
2: Well, one of the things that I really like to do and comes up in the book, but to even sort of think about the boundaries around, you know, who is a tech worker, for example. We would have, you know, easily to hand a stereotype of, you know, a Mark Zuckerberg or a Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or something. But, you know, what are all the material forms of work that go into producing these kinds of products. And that certainly involves, you know, not only electronics engineering, which, by the way, also it is worth noting that the U.S. government has funded a lot of the basic research that has then gone into these, you know, consumer products that we then attribute to being the products of these, um, you know, genius companies. But to sort of step further and further and further back and kind of zoom out in these commodity productions, because it's not, again, just a software suite on a, you know, shiny electronic device. There's also, you know, where was that circuit board assembled? You know, the fact that Apple products come with the, I'm probably going to mangle this a little bit, but they say like designed in Cupertino and manufactured in China often, you know, sort of taking a step back there are, you know, strong patterns of uh, race and gender around who we're assigning as the, you know, powerful, important technologists in the sort of pipeline of bringing our electronics to us. But really, there's, you know, skilled assembly work, and before that, there's often, you know, very environmentally and, you know, in terms of personal safety, hazardous, you know, mining work and. Thinking about sort of that long commodity chain uh, and the power relations in it is one of the things that I try to do in teaching. Um, I teach communication students often. I think people think that I if I say I teach in communication, they think that I'm you know teaching how to do what you're doing or you know do production of some kind, media production. And I don't do that. But you know the sort of sedimented and often invisibilized you know history of labor in the internet is uh, one of the big things that I try to do to kind of get us thinking about these sort of longer histories of labor and materials and to sort of start to look at their consumer electronic products in a totally new way for them a lot of the time.
1: So next time we look at our mobile phone and we sort of marvel at it and we're glad we found it because we thought we lost it, what would you like us to think about?
2: I mean, there's a few things. One is like, if we're talking about technology, right? Why is the phone or the laptop, like the little shiny electronic device, the thing that we're calling technology that shows a lot of sort of bias towards novelty and again, sort of assigning power and even, you know, sort of genius and maybe even almost a certain, you know, sort of divine providence or something to these little things. And why are we marveling so much more over your electronic Device than over the electrical grid, you know, which fundamentally your device wouldn't really do anything for you if it weren't able to be, you know, connected to a power source. So that would be one question. And another, and I don't know if this is going to go anywhere very interesting, but just the sort of naming convention, like why is that called your phone and not your computer? And I think that one answer we could give is that, you know, the technology history is not just a history of like, again, the object, it's a history of use and conventions and social expectations. And so I think the reason you're calling something a phone, even though you're hardly talking on it like a telephone very often, you know, probably has to do with the legacy of it being a more personal and intimate technology that you're using for one-to-one communication a lot. And so I think both of those would be things that I would want you to think about. And they both point to a sort of deeper material history and often sort of conventional to the point of invisible and invisibility, uh, sort of social convention around, you know, what this object is that is on the one hand, totally ubiquitous and mundane, but on the other hand, has this often more unremarked upon material history and a set of social conventions and expectations that run through it.
1: Associate Professor Christina Dunbar-Hester, thank you.
2: Thank you for the invitation to have me.
0: Thank you to Associate Professor Christina Dunbar-Hester from the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Southern California. And thanks to Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on November 17, 2020. You will find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Production, audio engineering and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2021, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.